the eye of the beholder, the Gospel of John as historical reportage, has just been released. It's been available for pre-order for a little while, and now it's out for full order. I hope you will get a hold of a copy. This video is going to be a tour through the book, a brief summary of what you can expect to find in each chapter. I also have a couple of samples on my webpage, lydiamcgrew.com. I have the blurbs. I have the table of contents on there. I have chapter one and I have the conclusion, Huckster or Historical Witness, The Yohanine Dilemma. Here I'm going to be somewhat leisurely. This is a leisurely release video. And I have a table of contents here, and I'm just going to kind of go through it and summarize a little of what's in each chapter. Later this week, I will be releasing a trailer, and that'll be a short, punchy trailer with music and effects on the screen and so forth. But this is a contentful release video that's uh, meant to give you some media information about what's in the book and uh, get you interested in buying it. I'm going to put links to those samples in the video description below. So let's get started. Chapter one, which is one of the samples, is called The Gospel of John, The Red-Headed Stepchild of Gospel Scholarship. You can read it for yourself. It gives the background, a little bit of the background of the book in the sense that it shows the way that the Gospel of John has come under attack, certainly by mainstream scholars, more liberal scholars, but then also more recently by even some evangelical scholars who have conceded uh, too much and have given the impression that there's something historically mixed, if I can put it that way, about the Gospel. That's something that's unique about this book. As I go through this video and as I go through the table of contents, I'm going to be highlighting some things that are unique about the book because there are a lot of books out there about the Gospel of John and you might wonder why do we need another book about the Gospel of John. One of the things that's unique is that the book is sort of organized around objections that have seemed to some extent cogent even to relatively his, uh, conservative historical Jesus and gospel scholars. And what I'm trying to do here is to dispel a kind of myth that if a, an objection has seemed cogent to an evangelical or conservative scholar, it must be cogent. Because after all, they're Christians, they believe in the resurrection, so they don't have an anti-supernatural bias, so therefore there must be something to it. And part of what this book is trying to show is that that's not the case, that those, those objections are not uh, particularly good just because they've been picked out by these uh, evangelical scholars. They're, they're the same types of objections that are made by more liberal scholars, and they just happen to have struck these scholars, but they're not based on strong arguments. I'm also showing in chapter one why this is important, what we would lose if we conceded that the Gospel of John is partially historical, partially unhistorical, not in a fully historical genre. Why should you care? And so that's part of what I'm doing there. Chapter two is called Terms as Tools. Those of you who have read The Mirror or the Mask will be familiar with the material in chapter two. That's some of the um, most overlapping material, but the idea is for this book to stand on its own so that if you haven't purchased or read the mirror or the mask, you can just read the eye of the beholder and still have the terminology that you need. <clears throat> so I do things like 
achronological and dischronological narration, for example, which I've discussed in other videos, I've discussed in The Mirror or the Mask, and I explain what that is. I distinguish different senses of paraphrase. I'm going to talk a lot more about that in later chapters as well. So I try to set up the terminology that we need. Now, chapter three is called John is Historical Reportage, a first positive case. You might say that the eye of the beholder has a kind of sandwich structure, in a sense. And after some of this preliminary material, then I have the first bread slice of the sandwich, which is um, positive reason to trust John. Then in the middle, I have a, a bunch of objections and answers to them. And then I go back to the other bread slice, which is more positive evidence. It's not quite that clean because in the chapters on objection, I'm, objections, I'm also providing positive evidence. So, you know, it's not possible to make an absolutely sharp distinction there, but you can think of it that way. Set up, then positive evidence, then answers to objections, then more positive evidence. So this first positive case, chapter three, is mostly focused on external evidence, uh, things like geography, customs and culture, name statistics, that kind of thing. But I also talk about John's statement of his own purpose, his own mission. I decided not to call this a prima facie case. Sometimes the phrase prima facie case can seem to mean that it's a little bit weak. You know, there's this idea that if I just give a prima facie case, it's easily defeated. It's just something that sort of gets you started, but it's not really all that strong. I, I didn't want Chapter 3 to seem to be that weak. So that's why I called it a first positive case. It's, it's a strong positive case, even in itself, even though it's only part of the evidence. So that a reader is meant to finish Chapter 3 and say, yeah, you know, why, why wouldn't we take John to be historical? So it kind of sets you up to say, there's a pretty strong case here. What's supposed to be the issue that would cause us to think that it's not entirely in a historical genre or it's he was making certain things up, he was inventing things, he was expanding upon what Jesus taught. Why would you think that? Look at all of this positive evidence. Chapter four is called John the Beloved Disciple. That's my chapter in the body of the book on authorship. In that chapter, what I seek chiefly to establish is that the author was a personal disciple of Jesus. His name was John. He traveled with Jesus and uh, he, he knew Jesus personally and that he really was the author of the book. He wasn't just a sort of tradition that stood behind it or behind one version of the book or something. He may have had a, a scribe, but that would just be a scribe. That wouldn't be some kind of co-author inserting literary devices or changing stories or whatever. If at most that would be someone to whom he's dictating the story um, and, the, and the material. Now, there I don't do a lot with the theory that there was another person named John who was not the son of Zebedee. I save that for the appendix. I'll talk about that in a minute. Those who are interested in the work of Richard Balcom can accept, and who accept Richard Balcom's theory about authorship, can accept virtually everything in chapter four. I argue that he, the author was John, the beloved disciple, and I try to defer the question of whether he was the son of Zebedee. It's not entirely possible to disentangle those. Uh, I do talk there about whether he was what's called a stay at home, or whether he traveled with Jesus. I argue that he did travel with Jesus, and that is sometimes taken to support that he was the son of Zebedee. 
see it all the better from my perspective, but I try to disentangle and sort of defer that question. Now, chapters 5, 6, and 7 hang together. These chapters represent another unique facet of the book. More than any other book that I know of that's out there, this book, The Eye of the Beholder, delves into the question of the way Jesus talks in the Gospel of John. That's not to say that there hasn't been a lot already written. There's been a lot already written. But what this book does is it very self-consciously tries to answer the claim that the way Jesus talks is some kind of case against the full historicity of the Gospels, the Gospel of John. That there's something suspicious about the way Jesus talks. And I'm not saying this hasn't been addressed. In fact, one of the uh, good articles that addresses this is something I'm going to link below. Uh, it's by D.A. Carson. It's called uh, After Dot What? I think it may be Jesus in the Fourth Gospel, After Dot What? And I like the way that Carson is very straightforward, and he tries to get rid of jargon, and he says, well, okay, even if we say all that can be said about Johannine idiom, still, the author presents Jesus as actually saying these things on particular occasions, and did he or didn't he say these things on particular occasions? I really appreciate Carson's straightforwardness in the, in that respect, uh, that he's not evading those questions. I spend three chapters on those questions. Chapter 5 is called, Was Jesus John's Mouthpiece? And there I introduce the idea even more of paraphrase and this whole question of what, is, what do you mean by Johannine idiom? It's an ambiguous phrase. It can mean all kinds of different things. I introduce um, evidence of John's scrupulousness when reporting Jesus' words. I dealt with some of this in an earlier video that you can find uh, about these false facts about John and the way he supposedly changed what Jesus said. And so I, I do some of that right there in chapter 5, and there's positive evidence that is, in a sense, answering. You know, I set up and then begin to answer this objection, and I show actual positive evidence of uh, John's being scrupulous. Chapter 6 continues that. It's called The Myth of the Sock Puppet Jesus. And you know what a sock puppet is on the internet where you have two different people and uh, someone in a com thread, com box thread, pretends that they're different, but they're really both the same guy pretending to be two different people. And that whole idea of, of Jesus being John's mouthpiece kind of makes uh, Jesus a sock puppet. And there I'm introducing various Johannine themes and the claim that, well, these themes are found in, uh, in, in John, but they're not found in the synoptics, and this is somehow, you know, suspicious and so forth. And I, I, I argue that that's not the case. I also deal with some of the specifics of uh, Greek style, and the, the Greek style, which supposedly is suspiciously similar to 1 John, and what might be the cause of that, that Jesus, quote-unquote, sounds like John. And I, I want to mention, too, here that I had these chapters in particular reviewed by scholars who, who know Greek. The whole book was given to a number of scholars who are very conversant in Greek, and, and they endorsed the book. But there were uh, several scholars that I actually had focus uh, even more on chapters 5, 6, and 7 for that very reason.
And then chapter 7 is called The Myth of the Monologuing Jesus. And that's where I talk about this claim that Jesus goes on and on and on in the Gospel of John, there are these long discourses, and that there's something suspicious about that. You know, how could he possibly have remembered those? And therefore, he must be partly inventing them or elaborating or embellishing. And I answer that. Chapter 8 is called Historical Authenticity in John's Gospel. Now, this is another thing that's unusual about this book. More than any other book that's out there, the closest is Craig Blomberg's uh, Historical Reliability of John's Gospel. It's a very good book. And then this is just taking this somewhat farther. And Dr. Blomberg blurbed the book and said he's happy for me to be even taking this farther. What I'm doing is I'm challenging the use of the criteria of authenticity in Yohanin studies as, as those criteria are in practice used. I had a video about this as well, about the criteria and the passage-by-passage passage approach and avoiding the pitfalls of the passage-by-passage passage approach. And the, this is what I'm dealing with in Chapter 8. Uh, I have some criticisms of uh, William Lane Craig there, even though Dr. Craig has said some great things about not using the criteria of authenticity negatively, and that's good, but I believe that he himself somewhat falls into that pitfall without realizing it, and I, I spell out why I think that is in Chapter 8, and I talk there about how we need to expand our toolkit, and we need to have tools for evaluating the Gospels that don't really fit. They can't really be shoehorned into the criteria of authenticity, even broadly conceived, but that's okay. We just we just need more tools, and we also need to uh, argue for the reliability of the whole Gospel. We need a holistic approach. Something that I'm doing throughout here, this is another unusual, if not unique, feature of the book, is I'm pushing back really hard against jargon. There are certain kinds of jar jargon that are all too common in Yohanin studies. So these would be things like, uh, this may go back to the historical Jesus. You know, instead of Jesus said it, John remembered that Jesus said it. We have this distancing terminology. It may go back to the historical Jesus. Or it may go back to a tradition about the historical Jesus. <clears throat> or something that's said as if it's a compliment John may have a tradition that lies behind what he records that here in this passage. Yay! I mean, we're, we're supposed to be really excited. There may be a tradition here as opposed to it's just making it up completely out of whole cloth. So what I'm trying to do is I'm very self-consciously trying to get away from that jargon and that, that distancing way of talking and to replace it with non-jargon, more straightforward phrases like, did Jesus say this in a recognizable way? Did this really happen? Does John remember it? How does John know it? Did he get this from so-and-so? Whom did he get this from? And that kind of way of talking. Um, did it happen? Not did a tradition lie behind it and so forth. And I think that's really useful. Not just because I want to bridge the gap between the scholar and the layman, but because I think it helps scholars to think more rigorously instead of using this kind of obfuscating talk. It's not clear what they're really committing themselves to. And I think Chapter 8 helps with that. Chapter 9, called Objections Great and Small. So I've already dealt with some of the what I call biggies in chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7 about the way Jesus talks. In chapter 9, I'm trying to deal with more of the, the biggies, the things that supposedly impress 
the um, even some evangelical scholars like to claim that John moved the day of Jesus' crucifixion, for example. Chapter 10, I'm turning now to the other bread slice. Now I'm turning for my last three uh, full chapters back to more positive evidence. So chapter 10 is called John Who Saw. And that is about the vividness of the accounts. And internal evidence this is something that was used by uh, F.L. Godet, by Leon Morris, for example, Westcott to some extent, uh, the, these older scholars, and actually um, Morris just died in, I think, 2006, so he's not all that, that much older. Um, these now dead scholars who were using these internal evidences of historicity that have fallen out of style, especially when we remember that there was no genre of hyper-realistic literal fiction at the time. So what is John just inventing this out of nowhere and then it disappears again after him? That doesn't seem plausible as a matter of literary history. Uh, and then it, he's putting it forward as a hoax, I guess, to try to confuse people into thinking it's historical. That doesn't seem uh, correct either. So I'm dealing here with things like the vividness of the scenes and the the details that he notes that don't seem to um, serve any other purpose, any literary purpose. I'm dealing too with his uh, interest in physical motion. It's, it's pretty cool the way John is so interested in physical motion. So when he describes the race to the tomb, there have been all of these, uh, to my mind, rather silly theological attempts to interpret that or historical attempts that uh, this was about different schools. Uh, one was a Johannine school and one is a Petrine school and who got there first. And I'm trying to allegorize it. But I think we should see it more commonsensically that it's, it's just describing these motions. This guy gets there and he stoops down and looks in, but he doesn't go in. And then, and then Peter gets there and he rushes in, which of course fits with, um, fits with Peter's personality. And then the beloved disciple comes in and he sees, and then the specificity of how the clothes are lying. He's very interested in that. He does it, and he does it with Mary Magdalene as well. She turns, and then she turns back, and then she turns back again. I think he had that account from Mary Magdalene himself, herself. So that chapter is called John Who Saw. Chapter 11 is called Puzzle Pieces. There I deal with the positive evidence of undesigned coincidences, unexplained allusions. I've already been dealing with unnecessary details in, in chapter 10, but the way that we have these unexplained allusions, which actually make bad fiction, but fit very well as just a natural historical report and the person saying this as it comes to mind. And then chapter 12 is called A High Resolution Jesus, and I'm very excited about that. I think that makes a great last full chapter, because <clears throat> that's about the personality of Jesus, which is something I'm going to be talking about at a, a, a conference in a couple weeks here, a small in-person conference right here in Michigan. Uh, I'm going to call that Talk Only One Jesus. So in a high-resolution Jesus, I'm dealing with the personality of Jesus and even the language of Jesus in both John and the Synoptics and the way that it's clearly the same person. I'm going to put a lot of things in here about this claim that there's nothing about the way Jesus talks in uh, the Synoptics or very little, only the thing called the Yoanine Thunderbolt. That's the only exception where Jesus talks the same way. That's not true. And I have a bunch of counterexamples. And then I have his personality 
and how it's the same personality in a whole variety of different stories across the Gospels and in John and in the Synoptics. And I really push back here against a kind of a heads, I win, tails, you lose approach that certain scholars take. So if we don't find something similar in John and the Synoptics, they say, oh, see, you know, Jesus is so different. But if we do find something similar, then they say, ah, John has adapted this synoptic scene for his own purposes. So there's nothing that John could do then that would show that he's really showing the same Jesus with the same personality and the same thoughts, just in a different context. An example here would be when Jesus is troubled in spirit in John 12, and he he says, what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? And some scholars will say, "Um, oh, maybe this is moved from the Garden of Gethsemane and the agony in the garden. Well, what would it take to convince you that John is just portraying the same person and that this same person, as you might expect, felt mental anguish on more than one occasion when looking forward to his crucifixion? That's very believable. And and they they don't seem like the same scene at all. They're obviously not the same scene, but it's the same Jesus. So that's chapter 12, <clears throat> High Resolution Jesus. Then we have the conclusion, which you can read as a free sample on LydiaMcGrew.com. I'm going to include that link below. Huckster or Historical Witness, The Johannine Dilemma. I model this on C.S. Lewis's Trilemma for Jesus. Those of you who are familiar with that will know that, that Lewis is uh, arguing against this idea that Jesus was a good teacher or a good man. He's saying Jesus didn't leave us with that option. He claimed to be God. So <clears throat> let's not condescend to Jesus by saying, well, he didn't really mean to say he was God. He's just a good teacher. He didn't leave us that option. Similarly, uh, let's not condescend to John, this is what I'm saying, by saying, well, uh, he didn't really mean to give us a fully historical gospel. He was giving us a, a more uh, spiritualized, partially historical gospel because he was allowed by the standards of his time to uh, do partially unhistorical things. I don't think John has given us that option. John is is presenting his gospel as historical in genre from beginning to end. So if he is not a historical witness, then he is a huckster or a hoaxer. He's trying to present something as fully historical when he knows it's not. And those those are our options. That is the Johannine dilemma, just like the trilemma for Jesus and uh, John is not giving us an option of saying, oh, he's partially non-historical, but that it doesn't matter. We're just, you know, we just have our modern hangups. That's not actually, I think, correct. So I think we need to face that dilemma and say, what are we really going to say about John? Finally, the appendix. Some of you are going to be interested in this very long appendix. It's a little almost monograph in itself, and it's about Richard Balcom's Elder John theory. I've deferred that to the end because, to be quite honest, if you like the Elder John theory, I want you to like chapters 1 through 12 uh, and to and to not be put off by them. And so I've deferred most of that till the appendix. <clears throat> I know there are <clears throat> very conservative people, scholars, apologists who really are convinced by that Elder John theory. I think it's wrong. I think John the son of Zebedee wrote the book and I want to answer it, but I wanted to put that off. I actually do have uh, not only summaries of arguments that others have already but already made, there's plenty of answer, 
answering that's been done out there. Andreas Kostenberger, for example, wrote some really good stuff answering uh, Richard Baucom's uh, theories. So there's a lot of that already out there, but I also have some unique arguments of my own against uh, the Elder John theory, one of them having to do with name disambiguation, and one of them having to do with a positive argument that only the twelve, as the, the disciples, there might have been servants, but as the disciples, only the twelve were present at the Last Supper, which would rule out that theory of another John who was not one of the twelve and was present. And that's usually seen as an argument from silence, that only the twelve are mentioned. I have my own argument that I believe is not just an argument from silence, that only the 12 were present. I'm not going to tell you what that is here because I want you to buy the book. That is a summary of The Eye of the Beholder, The Gospel of John as Historical Reportage. Get hold of a copy. It's available now. I'll put the link below where you can click and go and buy it. There is something here for everyone. Don't be put off by what might sound like the scholarly content. Every chapter has a bullet-pointed summary at the end. This is available and friendly, I believe, for interested laymen, for pastors, but also for seminary professors and uh, seminary classes. I want to mention that as a last thing. My publisher is offering free desk copies virtual desk copies for free in the in the form of PDF to a professor if you teach a course at a seminary or a Bible college you can get in touch with my publisher uh, Nathan Ward at Ward, Nathan at dward.com and ask for a free PDF version if you are in the continental United States, the uh, board will make available to you a 50% off price for a physical copy. If you are in some other country, due to COVID restrictions, we're not quite sure how we would get you a free a 50% um, off physical copy. But if you're in the continental U.S., the, the lower 48, we're, we're sure that we can get you a physical copy at 50% off as a desk copy if you teach a course on this. We, we would like to really make this available because I think it would be an ideal textbook for seminary and Bible college classes. Please avail yourself of that if you are a, a professor. But if you are not a professor, if you're a pastor, if you're a layman, if you're an apologist, please get a hold of a copy. I believe that it will strengthen your confidence that the Gospels can be trusted, and in particular, that the Gospel of John can be trusted. Thanks for watching.